The transgender wedge issue is coming strong to Ohio, and it's one of the things we'll be talking about today on This Week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues Jane Cahoon, Laura Johnston, and on Wednesday, our chief political writer, Seth Richardson. Seth did such a great job informing us last Wednesday. We decided to make him a regular on every Wednesday when Layla Atassi is not here. Welcome all and welcome, Seth. Hopefully I can live up to the hype. <laughs> I, I'm sure you can. Let's get right to the transgender issue. How are lawmakers working to restrict the rights of transgender people in Ohio? Seth Richardson, this is sad because it, I think 90% of this argument is really about creating a wedge issue so that the conservatives can say nana nana boo boo and the Democrats can come back and, and champion it. And it's too bad because it's a serious issue that I think people are grappling with in the center, but it doesn't matter. The the wedge is there. What's it about? So, you know, following the lead of a lot of Republicans in other states, the, you know, there's, there's been some introductions of some bills, probably chiefly among those that is going to be most likely the most high profile is the transgender sports ban, which would prevent transgender girls from participating in girls' high school athletics. There's also another bill that will be there as well. That may not get talked about as much, but it you know is probably equally important, and you know are arguably even maybe more so that would prevent doctors from providing transition you know therapy to uh, minors you know transgender minors uh, hormone therapy, and you know yeah I I think I agree with you on this being just kind of a wedge issue. I think we've seen in the past that Republicans oftentimes will try to have a wedge issue going into an election because they tend to perform better when they can kind of get the uh, the outrage machine working, so to speak. That's why we've seen these pop up all around, you know, the country, because, you know, this wasn't an issue people were talking about in December. And all of a sudden, you know, once uh, Democrats everywhere. take control in Washington, it is everywhere. Well, let's back up a second, because the on the not allowing the surgery or the hormone therapy, the key to that is, is they're going to ban it even if the parents and doctors believe it's right. So they're taking away a parental right and a physician's expertise of what is best for a child and having the legislature decide what is best for children. It's kind of shocking, and I would think that there's a constitutional challenge that could be made that would take that to the U.S. Supreme Court, where I'm not sure how it would go based on the breakdown. The sad thing about the transgender girls playing girls sports is there are people that are are grappling with this because if if somebody is born biologically as a boy there are people that worry that if they're playing girls sports that they can somehow outcompete or outarm there are people that worry about scholarships and th there's very strong arguments against that and and people are making them but rather than have this as a community debate and allow people to grapple with it, it's a, it's a wedge issue. It's it's you know governors racing to to sign it or in some cases veto it and then getting overridden. And it's too bad because if we had actual conversations about this and we talked to people who were affected by it, we might find the empathy needed to to make good decisions about it. Who knows what the right decisions are? But we're not doing that. We're we're playing these stupid political games, you know, arguing by tweet. Well, and it's it's treated as this like monolithic issue, right? If you if you look at what people are saying about it, specifically Republicans, conservatives are saying about it, it's you know apparently this widespread problem that just go problem used in quotes there 
everywhere. But, you know, the number of transgender athletes is incredibly small. And, you know, it, it does seem like, why, why, why is this the issue is like the, the, the underlying question. There are so many problems that are going on with the state right now that this is what people are deciding to focus on, something that's, you know, kind of, when you think about it in the end, relatively inconsequential. And the only thing that I can really think of is, yeah, it comes back to electoral politics, right? The, the sort of organizations who are supporting it, they're more probably true believers in this, um, you know, in terms no, of some of the religious yeah. organizations. But the, the politicians themselves, you know, yeah, like they just see a wedge issue to run right. on. And they're not, a, they're not taking the individuality into like, you know, consideration. It's a new form of discrimination. And we're making a class of people feel bad about themselves by putting them in, in the crosshairs. Jane Cahoon. Yeah, I just wanted to point out that uh, Laura Hancock, who did this story, also talked to the Ohio High School Athletic Association, and they developed a policy on this that seems to be pretty thoughtful uh, to try to ensure that they give opportunities to transgender athletes while at the same time, you know, trying to protect competition. And I mean, I'm not saying I'm not making a judgment on it that it's, you know, it's perfect or it's a solution. But even they said this shouldn't be a legislative thing. You know, we, we have a policy to to deal with this. And I also wanted to point out that the the other bill that we're expecting to to come on the, um, you know, transitioning, the medical transitioning, that mirrors a bill in Arkansas that the governor vetoed and was overridden. The Republican governor there even said this bill is it just goes too far. Well, it lacks compassion. We're, we're lacking compassion in the way we address this instead of having an open discussion about it. Laura Johnston. I just wanted to say, I think the whole point is the wedge issue that you talked about. It's not to be compassionate. It's not to look at this at an individual level and make some good decisions and have a, an open discussion. It, you know, it, nobody's trying to be thoughtful about this. They're just trying to make it a black and white issue so that people they think will side with them. Okay, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What is the status of the Ohio law that punishes doctors who perform abortions because prenatal tests reveal a child might be born with Down syndrome? Jane Cahoon, we just talked about the legislature reaching into those sacred doctor-patient discussions and putting its thumb on the scale. This is another case of that, and yet it looks like it's going to happen. Yeah, this law has been upheld by a federal appeals court, the, the Sixth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, and it means that doctors could face felony charges and the loss of their medical license if they violate this law. The law says that doctors who perform an abortion because of a woman's fears that her child could have Down syndrome or if they have a possible diagnosis of Down syndrome, they could be convicted of a fourth-degree felony and get up to 18 months in prison and a $5,000 fine. And the state medical board could also revoke their license. This is a law that was signed in 2017 by then Governor John Kasich, who, who signed a number of abortion restrictions. And then months later, Judge, uh, federal judge Timothy Black blocked it with an injunction. So it's been on hold ever since as a result of a lawsuit by Planned Parenthood and preterm Cleveland. But this Sixth Circuit ruling on Tuesday overturned Judge Black. However, the court was sharply divided over over this issue. It was a nine to seven vote. Judge Alice Batchelder, who wrote for the majority, said the law does not create a substantial op 
obstacle to a woman's ability to choose or obtain an abortion. She said the law is valid in all conceivable cases. And uh, But just to illustrate this deep divide that I mentioned, Justice Bernice Donald wrote a scathing dissent from this ruling that said, I'm going to call it what it is, the long arm of the state wielding the threat of a class four felony, forcefully reaching into a profoundly intimate conversation between doctor and patient and telling the patient to be silent about her medical history or worse, purposefully lie about it. So it's not. This isn't over, though, right? This will go to. No. Well, I I was just going to say it's not clear yet whether abortion rights advocates are going to take this fight to the U.S. Supreme Court. I'm sure they're going to put a lot of thought into the ramifications of doing that. That they might fear it would set a precedent so they don't want to have the Supreme Court precedent? I don't know. That's just speculation on my part. But they got to carefully consider, I think, which cases they want to try to get the Supreme Court to hear. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How much of our tax dollars did the Cuyahoga County Council approve spending Tuesday to pay county workers not to work during the pandemic furloughs last year? Laura Johnson, let's talk about what they did first, and then let's talk about the stupid thing they did last year that kind of put them in the place where they had to do it. Okay, so $10.9 million is the amount that that will pay back county employees. You had to take this 80-hour unpaid leave of furloughs. It went to county council. It was passed 10 to 1 without committee hearing, without a lot of comment. Councilman Jack Schron, he's a Republican, was the only one who voted against the plan. He didn't say why he voted that way. All right. So last year, mm-hmm. when the pandemic hit, we applauded Armin Budish and the council for being fiscally conservative because they didn't know what was ahead. And so they did what many different governments and businesses did. They put people on furlough to save some money, depending on what the financial cataclysm could be. The thing they did that is, that was, that is questionable now is instead of just not paying them for the two weeks of furlough or whatever it was, they adjusted their pay so they would get paychecks through the year. That deprived them of the ability to apply for unemployment. Right. If they had just cut their pay, right, they would have been able to apply for unemployment. They also would have gotten pandemic unemployment. Courtney Astolfi, our county reporter, says that would not have made most of the county workers completely whole. But the bill for making them whole now wouldn't have been $10.9 million, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And some of these people, they were taking off a day at a time or up to a week at a time. You could take a week of furlough and apply for unemployment. You know, plenty of people who did that. And then you get paid. But the extra $600, I think it could be close to $1,000 for a week. So, I mean, it's not chump change. And, and that would go a long way to making these people whole. But instead, I guess they thought they were helping out the employees, that they would people who live paycheck to paycheck would have an easier time to budget if they didn't have the, this big gap of not getting paid in the middle of their year. But yeah, it ended up hurting taxpayers because this way it's just coming out of Cuyahoga County coffers rather than the entire state with the unemployment system. Well, I'm surprised that, look, they did that for the best of motives. They did that so that people wouldn't feel the hardship and you salute them for doing that. But at some point when they learned about the extra $600 a week, you'd think they'd say, hey, wait a minute, we're actually hurting them by doing this because if they could get this money, it may not replace their entire paycheck, but it would replace a significant portion of it, which, which would have been good for the employees last year. They would have had more money. 
And it would have been good for taxpayers now because they wouldn't have to pen, spend nearly $11 million to fix it. I love that you were asking these common sense questions, like why the Buddhist administration didn't think of this. Like, just add it to the list of incompetent moves that we've seen that we discuss on those podcasts weekly, if not daily. But yeah, it would have, you, you would have thought somebody would have pointed that out and said, oh, I think we can make this better. Yeah, well, they're making it better now. And it's, boy, our pockets are empty. You're listening to This Week in the CLE, who is the latest person to formally announce entry into the increasingly crowded Republican primary fight for Rob Portman's U.S. Senate seat. And that's handicapped this race so far, Seth Richardson. So, yeah, on, uh, we've got Cleveland investment banker, businessman Mike Gibbons getting into the race. If that name sounds familiar, it's because he ran in 2018 for the uh, Republican primary to challenge Sherrod Brown. He initially was challenging Josh Mandel, so I guess he'll get kind of a rematch there. Before Mandel dropped out in 2018, you know, the Republican Party then coalesced, you know, including Donald Trump said, hey, Jim Renacy, we want you to run. You know, he's making a second go at it. I, I, I don't know what his prospects are. I would think not necessarily great just by virtue of it, you know, possibly being a crowded race. But it being a crowded race maybe also does give him a better shot at it this time around. But he made a major misstep <laughs> with his announcement. <laughs> he, he did. And, you know, the, the, these things are always funny because it's very easy to avoid them. So, you know, he comes out with this, you know, roughly three minute high quality, you know, high definition video about uh, kind of laying out his vision, you know, in sort of bite sized nuggets, uh, talking about the American dream, talking about families matter. And, you know, when you make these ads, a lot of times stock footage is used. But while he's talking about the American dream, He's using footage of a family in Russia walking through a field and a, a family in Ukraine that is currently getting their picture taken around a meal. And it, it's just one of the it's like it's one thing to, you know, use stock footage. Everybody does it. But it's it's like a certain kind of misstep where you're talking about the American dream while literally showing Russians. You know, it's just but don't you think I mean, don't you think it, there's like a there should be a checklist as you put together your announcement that says, you know, video, make sure it's America. You know, yes, I mean, it's just yes. It's basic, right? <laughs> yes, that's, that's like... <laughs> so many I, have been bitten by stupid stuff like this. You would think that anybody in the political sphere would say, okay, last minute check. Is everything in there from our country? Yes. it's And, and you know, when I was talking to people yesterday, you know, p- people who make ads, you know, it, yes, it could have been worse where, you know, there have been cases where people use like photos, say, or, you know, photos or videos saying like, hey, this is this local place and it's actually a different city or something like that. So it's not quite that bad. But, you know, when you're talking about the American dream, you probably don't want to include, you know, Russian images at the very least, considering that they're widely considered an adversary. It just sort of, <laughs> I think well, of this, everybody think of except this, Donald Trump. I mean, for him, they were, <laughs> yeah, they were that's what I'm thinking. <laughs> think about if this happened in an ad in like 1984, right? <laughs> like at the height of the Cold War or whatever. It's right, just, it would have been I don't know. Just it, it, it's funny. All right. So, so he's he's the fourth official Republican in. We got Bernie Moreno, another business person. We got the former Republican Party chair of the state, Jane Timken. And we have Josh Mandel, who I can't imagine he has any shot because the email I've gotten from Republicans and Democrats, just dozens and dozens and dozens. They hate him. People really don't like Josh Mandel. And as as somebody reported over the weekend, the Republicans even kicked him out of a fundraiser over the weekend. <laughs> yeah. So so I look at Gibbons and to a lesser extent Moreno and I wonder, are these guys just delusional? 
you know, they're not known. Nobody knows who they are. They have no record in this area. How do they even begin to have a chance to win this this battle? Well, there are chances in if it becomes so crowded where you've got six and seven candidates that, you know, conceivably 35, you know, 30, 35 percent can win this primary. Right. That's sort of the gamble that you're making in a one on one, you know, probably not against someone who's more established. But when you do start getting this kind of crowded field, you know, anything can happen. Will it happen? I don't know. The odds are probably not. But if we're looking at the field thus far, has anybody really kind of separated themselves at this point? I would say probably not. That's why everybody keeps looking at who else is going to get in this race, right? There's questions about if Steve Stivers is going to get in, if Mike Turner is going to get in, Bill Johnson, you know, J.D. Vance is kind of running and everything but name only at this point. So there, there isn't that clear cut, you know, candidate who is who has completely separated themselves. And I think that is where the chance comes in. And I think when we are looking at races, we're also looking at, you know, it, it in the now. Right. And there's still a year like a lot can happen. And who knows, maybe somebody takes off. I think if people, you know, a year before the 2016 election, I don't think too many people were thinking that Donald Trump was going to be president. Now, that is an outlier. And that is probably it's a very specific case. So, yeah, I mean, you know, if we're if we're handicapping, it's like, OK, let's look at it. Who's probably got the most support in terms of right now? I think Jane Timken probably has right. the, the most like institutional support. Next on that list is probably Josh Mandel, just by virtue of name ID alone. Right. Like people do know him. But you are right. I talk they to Republicans him. all the time who hate they don't him. Want I, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall at that RNC meeting. Cause it's like, was, did, did he like do the college bar thing and go limp as they carried him out or like what <laughs> happened there? I, I just, I really wish I, I could have seen it. I think that the fact they kicked him out of there tells you his status in the Republican party that I, it, nobody wants him around. I mean, his party doesn't want him around. The Ohioans don't want him around. I don't usually get universal agreement on things that I write. But when I wrote that our policy was going to be to ignore all the nonsense that he spews on, not just nonsense, reckless, mean-spirited, racist, ethnicist messages on Twitter, I got overwhelming support from the readers, right and left. You're doing the right thing. Don't give any oxygen to such hateful speech. He needs to go away. And Republicans are petrified that he could somehow emerge from the, the primary. They just don't want him. And I have a feeling He's going to get that message before the primary, and I'll be surprised if he's still in it at the end. I'm going to be really excited to look at the fundraising reports that are you know, supposed to be coming out tomorrow, you know, within the next couple of days after that, because I think that'll give us an indication of where the support is coming from, or, or is it small dollar support, who in the state is donating to whom, who in the state isn't donating to whom. I think that'll provide a little bit of a clearer picture, because right now, we are operating on a little bit like well, actually quite a lot of conjecture, right? Because it's so far away and, you know, yeah, there's endorsements and all that. And those things do matter, especially in primaries. But I, I do think that those donor reports are going to give us a, you know, kind of a window into, okay, where is the support coming from? Who's, you know, who's kind of operating the best? What are they spending their money on as well? That'll also give an idea. Is it all just, you know, promoting tweets and whatnot, or is it actually kind of on the ground operations? That should give us a a much clearer picture. I still think it's bizarre. We're talking about this as if the primary is a month or two away. And this election is in November, 2022. We got to move on. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. 
what Bart Simpson-like punishment that was given to a misbehaving lawyer might just get him out of a license suspension. Jane Cahoon, this is the fun story of the day. You get the fun conversation. (laughs) I was just going to say, thanks for asking me about the weird news story of the day. So this is the story of Anthony Baker, a lawyer who got on the bad side of Cuyahoga County Common Police Judge Nancy first when Baker defended former East Cleveland police officer and Arena Football League player, and let me get this right, Denane Davidson Dixon, against felonious assault and domestic violence charges. He was accused of breaking multiple bones in his then-wife's face as the two argued in their home in 2019. Just to make this weirder, East Cleveland police fired this guy from his job, and he served about 18 months in prison after he pleaded guilty in 2017 to assaulting a man that he had arrested in a case. And that was featured on the popular podcast Serial. So just in case anybody remembers him from that. But anyway, Baker, the lawyer, wanted to argue self-defense on behalf of his client. But the judge refused to include that in the instructions to the jury. So in this odd behavior, he left the defense table while first delivered the jury instructions. And he hid behind a video board in the courtroom. And Judge First repeatedly called for courtroom security officers to to fetch him before she ended up stopping the proceedings. And she sent the jury to an early lunch so she could so she could scold Baker. And then here's the Bart Simpson part. First held Baker in contempt and she ordered him to write two sentences, 25 times each on a piece of notebook paper saying, I will not engage in conduct that is prejudicial to the administration of justice or in any other conduct that it adversely reflects on my fitness to practice law, and so on and so forth. It went, it went on from there. And, you know, each sentence included specific rules of professional conduct that, that first accused Baker of violating. She also hit him with a $500 fine. So, you know, Baker acknowledged that the judge was correct to punish him, but he, he said, you know, he still thought she was wrong to deny his request about the self-defense. And, He said, I was totally wrong in how I protested, but I don't think I was wrong in what I was fighting for. So anyway, the the Cleveland Metropolitan Bar Association ended up opening an investigation to about this after reading about it in Cleveland.com about this contempt hearing. And that brings us to this week when the Ohio Supreme Court Board of Professional Conduct said that Baker's conduct was unquestionably inappropriate, but he didn't deserve to have his license suspended because he was already punished by the judge and his conduct was chronicled in the media. So they instead recommended a public reprimand, which the Ohio Supreme Court still has to determine whether to accept that that punishment. All right. We'll have to see what happens. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How are the Girl Scouts of Northeast Ohio fighting racism? Laura Johnston, this was a story that popped up yesterday. I didn't know it was coming, and it's an interesting one. It is interesting. So they're creating a new badge for girls to earn, but they're making sure that the adults take part as well. So full disclosure here, I am a Girl Scout leader. I have a brownie troop. But the Girl Scouts are partnering with the YWCA on this social justice seeker program. The idea is to create racial equity and social justice challenges for girls, volunteers, and staff. So it's two-tiered and it's online. Troop leaders have to take it first. They have to complete adult sections and then they get girl content in the form of downloadable PDFs. And then the girls can complete the activities and earn a patch. And as you know, probably uh, girls love their patches. That, that's what they put on their vests or their 
stashes to show everything that they're learning in Girl Scouts. And then they want to update this program every 12 to 18 months because they realize that social justice is a hugely changing landscape. Jane Christison, who's the CEO of Girl Scouts of Northeast Ohio, said that they hope that they'll encourage the adults to take a deep dive into these articles, videos, and podcasts to have a knowledge base. Because obviously, this is not going to be something where you read a PDF and you, you check a box and you're done. This is probably going to be some deep discussions with the girls, which I think is really necessary and really helpful to have this kind of platform. And then meanwhile, the national organization received $500,000 from the Ford Foundation to dismantle systemic racism within the organization. They're going to do a big audit to find out where they have problems and then figure out how to address them. Interesting. Okay. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. What does Rob Portman have to say about being a test subject for the Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine, which was put on pause Tuesday because six people developed blood clots after getting the shot? Jen Cahoon, he's not in danger because he's a male and the people that got the blood clots are, are women and it's an infinitesimal number. But if I got the Johnson & Johnson shot, I'd be having some wondering going on. What does he say? Well, first of all, he got the shot during like the clinical testing of it. So it was a long time ago, said he had absolutely no effects from it. But he said he was kind of discouraged about this pause. And that's partly because he doesn't want people to be hesitant to get a vaccine. So he was very much, you know, urging people to, hey, still go out and get vaccinated. We've got these other vaccines, Moderna and Pfizer, you know, and whatever decision you know, is is made by the federal health authorities is going to be driven by science and, you know, with safety of, of people in mind. So he he also noted, as you noted, how rare these serious side effects were. Six women out of like 6.8 million people who got the vaccine got this rare blood clotting disorder. And uh, as I said, he said he didn't suffer anything. But as you said, he's also a man and all the people who suffered the side effects were women. He just said it's, you know, this vaccine is what's going to get us back to a more normal life where we get back to work and school and vaccines are critical to this. So that was Although, his message. It was interesting yesterday. I mean, the, 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 look, let's face it, the, the six people out of whatever it was, seven million doses is a tiny, 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 tiny fraction. But we posed the question with our staff yesterday about, OK, so if they allow this to be used again and you were given the choice of getting this now or finding the Pfizer or the Moderna, what would you do? And I was a little bit surprised by there wasn't all of them, but there were several that said, oh, I would get this. I would have no problem with this. And I was thinking, well, actually, if I mean, I'm done. I've had the Pfizer. I've had both shots, but I wouldn't. I would think, okay, there's a problem with this. I like the RNA technology that the Moderna and the Pfizer has. This doesn't work with that new technology. I would go get the other, but it was not the universal feeling, which surprised me. Yeah. You know, you got to think about, you know, do you ever see those drug commercials on TV where oh, yeah. it's like, yeah, blood clots or right. you know, heart attacks? or And, and uh, I think somebody pointed out that women taking birth control pills, you know, there've been, some of them suffer blood clots and probably to a greater degree than this. And so it's sort of like, you know, we're all guinea pigs for, for this stuff. And people have to make a decision as to whether, you know, the risk is too great or not. Laura Johnston, it puts a kink into the plans at the Wolstein Center Mass Vaccination Clinic. We've talked a lot about that because it's such 
it's a such a well-run operation. We've been vaccinated there, both you and I. And the final two weeks was supposed to be with the Johnson and Johnson, the single dose. The first six weeks were the uh, Pfizer. And what's the status of that if they can't use Johnson and Johnson? It's a question mark right now. They're saying nothing is off the table, that they could maybe use a two-shot vaccine going back to the Pfizer that they're using now, or who knows, maybe Moderna. I, I think they they don't want to answer that question because they don't know how long this pause is going to be. And, you know, if, if they go through and they try to narrow down who has a possibility of these blood clots, then they feel that they can safely inoculate people with the Johnson & Johnson, then maybe they'll keep that. But they said they could keep the Wolstein Center open longer than that original eight weeks. They would have to if they were to give the two-shot doses. And I think they're probably just waiting for more information to come down from the federal government. But it, it, right, because right now they're they're pausing all of the the Johnson Johnson and all the mass vaccination sites. Obviously, my wife came home yesterday. Said, "Aren't you glad now you didn't get the Johnson and Johnson?" And I think that kind of conveys the general feeling. If the government pauses Johnson and Johnson, then do you really want to get the Johnson and Johnson? Yeah. And my feeling would be, no, I want the five. Even though you're not a woman under the age of 48. Um, I mean, I the Johnson and Johnson already had a lower success rate against preventing. But it was from tested the on the variants. The Pfizer and Moderna weren't tested on variants. So I think yeah. that that is a big change. But I did talk to one of my friends who who did get Johnson and Johnson and she's in that age range. And obviously she's a woman. And, you know, it's been more than two weeks. She's not worried but I think, you know, Jane is right. Every time you hear anything advertised, any drug, it's like they list off all of those complications and it always ends in death. Right? Like, <laughs> talk to your doctor, you well, know, whether you're talking about like an acne medication or what. So people take things all the time that could have really bad side effects. It's just that the national government isn't stopping everything. All right. right we've I, done I, long. I, I got to close this down, uh, guys. Okay. You're listening to this week in the CLE. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Laura. Thank you, Seth. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. 